Welcome to Cult and Classic. <laughs> Welcome, fiends of the pod, to another episode of Cult and Classic. As always, I am your host, Nate Wyckoff, comedian and writer for HorrorNews.net. With us, we have Tad Mastriani. How you doing, Tad? Yeehaw. Yeehaw. And Mandy Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? Mm, pretty good. Uh, I last... am a zombie enthusiast, so I'm pretty psyched about this one. That's We've got an awesome lineup here we'll get into. Uh, Greg Johnson is also with us. How are you doing, Greg? Uh, you know, legally, you're not supposed to talk to me, right? Nah. <laughs> More than 500 feet away. Uh, so... <clears throat> Uh, as always, I want to let you guys know that if you enjoy Cult and Classic Podcast, please support us by writing reviews on your favorite podcast, Sorge Site. Uh, listening is great. Referring to your friends is even better. And join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You get extra videos, plus you get videos of all of our episodes, including most of our interview episodes. Um, we've got some really exciting ones coming up, so keep listening, and we will get to that later. This week, we have uh, Rock and Roll Murder is the theme. And we've got two awesome movies here that uh, I think will divide some people, but they're awesome to talk about. We have 2009's Diablo Cody written Jennifer's Body with Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. And then we have 1985's cult classic Hard Rock Zombies with no one featuring nothing. Uh, <laughs> Super, super excited. Now, there are some people in there that, that we'll recognize and we'll talk about those. Uh, very excited. So we're going to jump right in here. Jennifer's Body. Uh, first, did anybody, Mandy, you said you saw it in theaters. Has anybody else seen this movie before? No. No. Okay. I also yeah, saw it in theaters. This is actually, I like, I've, like, actually have this still on DVD. Oh. In a box in my attic. Like, it, it exists. It's it's been released several times on several platforms with several different covers. Uh, if you're watching our Patreon, you'll have my favorite uh, teaser poster here of a sort of drawing of Megan Fox's face licking blood. It's very accurate to the film's vibe. So, the film centers around two high school friends in a very satirical, heavy-handed, um, middle America, very Midwest style town. You can tell by the interiors of the houses with the wood paneling. Everything is stuck in 1970s. Um, but Amanda Seyfried plays sort of the mousy friend to the bossier uh, sort of uh, hot girl of the school, Megan Fox. And uh, they go to see a band from the city play at some podunk little bar. And the bar ends up burning down. And the band takes Megan Fox's character to the woods and sacrifices her to Satan for megastardom. Uh, little do they know, she's not actually a virgin. So instead of dying, uh, she becomes possessed by a demon and has to eat people in order to rejuvenate herself. Uh, and the, the sort of twist is, is that Amanda Seyfried is her friend uh, slash more and uh, ends up losing her boyfriend to Megan Fox's character and then they have a final showdown. So <clears throat> it's really a monster hunter tale but there's a lot more to unpack here. Um, it's written by Diablo Cody, as we said, most famous for writing Juno, um, an ex-exotic dancer. Uh, I think she's a very talented writer myself. And it's directed uh, by uh, another woman, Karen Kusama, who is herself got some acclaim. She directed Girl Fight in 2000. She directed the Anne Flux film with Charlize Theron. She directed The Divisive, but well, I think well-directed uh, Destroyer with Nicole Kidman in 2018. So. 
she they both have quite quite good track records this movie has a really strong cult following especially on platforms where people love memes like tumblr uh it's my wife told me it's definitely still alive for for a lot of people uh but otherwise i think this is sort of like a time capsule of like early 2000s or it's not even early but it feels like early 2000s teen angst life like the soundtrack is all um panic at the disco there's posters for bands like fallout boy and, and um uh story of the year i think is in there um the all sorts of references like that but let's get right into it tad you hadn't seen this movie um, I think advertising tells us one story and the movie tells us another story. What was your expectation going in? I expected this to suck donkey dong. And well, I was, <laughs> I was uh, actually pleasantly surprised um, for reference. It, it, this was kind of perfect timing because it's Halloween and my wife has never seen the Scream Queens TV show, which I am a mm. big fan of. And I get the feeling that Ryan Murphy took some inspiration from this movie to kind of write the the Chanel's characters mm -hmm. because it's the same kind of bitchy um over the top uh, not over the top over the top language you know dirty mouth kind of, of teenage to, to college age girls it it felt to the it, it felt great and now that I know that Ryan Murphy's trying to write a season three I'm hoping he pulls in Amanda Seyfried because she kind of is the archetype for what the the like especially in the last part of the movie <laughs> Like she, she fits that, that character type to a T. Well, and you sort of bring up some interesting things. Uh, the, I do think this movie was influential, Both it was influential, but also really influenced by uh, a lot of other things, including Diablo Cody's own work. I mean, it's, it's sort of the, the school and the, and the kids and the character, the characters themselves are almost satirical of the characters in Juno. Uh, like they're, it's less grounded in reality and the, the sort of caustic humor and, um, is upped to a level where it's it's satirical as opposed to just sort of um, social uh, social commentary. Uh, but the cast is really quite impressive in this. You have Megan Fox, who actually gets to act for once. Um, if anybody hasn't read or seen her recent interview where she talks about being sexualized at 15 by uh, Michael Bay and other uh, directors and casting people, read it because it's kind of eye-opening. And it's actually pretty shitty uh, how, how Hollywood treats young women let's all be surprised about that yeah i know right <clears throat> um but she gets to act so does amanda seafried um megan fox's character's name jennifer obviously and amanda seafried's called needy her name is anita and and she's sort of the everyone kind of puts her in this box of being just the shadow to jennifer's character um and we have adam brody playing nikolai the lead singer of the band that uh ends up uh, you know sacrificing jennifer uh, he does a great job of being like the weird cross of uh, Adam Lambert and uh, uh, what's Billy what's Joe his... Armstrong. Billy Joe Billy Joe Armstrong was I feel like really strong in uh, um, the the the, uh, the, the, the nerdy goth kid. Yeah, Kyle I got Gallner the vibe from both characters. Uh, but but definitely you know, it's the thirty seconds to Mars. It's very much that kind of thing. You know, every every and this is. Just but every 15 year old scene kid would have had this band's album, you know, uh, in 2004. Like they kind of nail the aesthetic and the song there, but he plays a really good bad guy. Um, we also have a lot of side characters in here. 
uh, J.K. Simmons plays uh, the the, <laughs> the damaged teacher who has scars and is missing his left arm. Amy Sedaris plays um, Needy's mom, Amanda Seyfried's mom. It was so fun to see her in there. Uh, and speaking of Amy Sedaris, we have Chris Pratt, uh, who who has a little bit seen as a uh, 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 cadet, officer cadet. Uh, that's kind of a, a douchebag. And I always wonder how people know each other in these movies and how they get involved. Because I remember in an interview, Chris Pratt, of course, from Guardians of the Galaxy, now in Parks and Rec and all sorts of things, Jurassic World series. Um, one of his early, like, crowning moments that, that he was super proud of as an actor is he left uh, and went to New York and then just ended up kind of bullying his way into doing, uh, I think it was it was unpaid. I think it might even have been uncredited part in Strangers with Candy, which of course featured Amy Sedaris and Stephen Colbert and a lot of amazing people. And then to see these two characters in such small parts in sort of an, an indie icons film like Diablo Cody, I, it just, it seems too unlikely to just be uh, synchronicity. I, I think that that's, that's, there's a story there and I, I wish I knew it. Um, and we also have uh, Josh Emerson is in this. It's been a lot of stuff. Uh, Ryan Levine, Johnny Simmons, um, who is, we talked about Scott Pilgrim the other day, uh, or rather we will in a future episode. <laughs> if you haven't heard it yet, you will. Uh, played uh, young Neil in Scott Pilgrim. So he's very recognizable as well. Uh, I do want to say that uh, this episode in general, guys, there were some trigger warnings. Um, some some things like uh, young women in peril, and also later Nazis. So we'll get into that. Uh, Greg, what was your expectation going into this film versus the reality of watching it? Um, I mean, I think it was a coin toss. I was ready to be really disappointed. I was ready to be blown away. I think I just kind of ended up disappointed. Um, I knew that this was a cult classic. I knew it would be hopefully up my alley. Um, but, you know, I just... I didn't feel like the movie had any guts to it. It just kind of followed these, this, this rail that I could see coming and never went off of it. Um, you know, maybe jumping ahead to spoilers. I did like that. We saw a conclusion in the credits versus seeing it on screen. I thought that was kind of a nice touch because it ended on this kind of cliffhanger vibe. And I'm like, I don't care. And then, you know, I'm like, I'm like, okay, I see the credits are like four minutes long. Let me jump around in those. I'm like, oh, okay. So it gets a little wrapped up in the credits. Great. Yeah. And I think, so there's, I agree with you on the aspect that you're not really surprised by the plot in this film, right? Like we expect, we, we get set up early on that Megan Fox's character, Jennifer is kind of the mean girl. And uh, Amanda Seyfried is, uh, you know, the uh, the dorky one. You know, it's almost like she's taking over um, the lead part from from Tina Fey's Mean Girls, right? Like she's the one that's sort of the dorky, like follow around, doesn't really understand. She's not fashionista, you know. The doormat. The doormat, right? Exactly. And and she has this play. She has a boyfriend that she really loves, but she also is like clearly very connected to to. Uh, Jennifer, Megan Fox character. And we can jump right in here. Uh, we'll get to you in a second, man. He's just waiting in the wings. But uh, there is very much sexual tension between the character of Jennifer and Needy. And that is set up early on. Um, personally, and that also is, is what I think sold this movie for a lot of, you know, the 15-year-old boys trying to get into the theater. Uh, 
I mean, I saw it in the theater. Um, and it is very clear to me every time I watch this movie that women made this film. Um, it doesn't mean it's not sexy. It doesn't mean there aren't, you know, scenes of, of uh, and that there are makeout scenes uh, between Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried, um, which is a straight man in my 30s. It's, you know, perfect marketing. But everything isn't directed, I didn't feel, towards me as a man. Um, if this film had been made by someone like a Michael Bay, uh, we would have had every Transformer shot we had of Megan Fox, you know, like riding on a motorcycle, wearing shorts that, uh, you know, essentially are flossing every part of her body, like ridiculous things that are just over the top garbage, in my opinion. And we don't get that. Um, there's even things like uh, Megan Fox at one point before she devours her, her first victim that we see. Um, she unzips her like hoodie or sweater and she has nothing underneath. And it was impressive also on a high def TV to see for the first, you know, first time that um, they hadn't heavily make up her chest. Like that's actual skin. And that's something that honestly, uh, Michael Bay would have had that done. Uh, she'd have been sprayed down, like everything. It just, it's not necessary. It's sort of ridiculous, but that would have happened if another person had been in charge. So I really hand it to um, the, you know, the, the, the crew, uh, Karen Kusama, to have this film be a little more realistic. There's a lot of kids in the background um, who are actually kids, actors who look like they're in high school. Um, I mean, it's shocking to see Amanda Seyfried look almost her real age, but she always looks like a child, but she's little in this movie. Like we see everyone sort of in a more natural result. I mean, obviously Megan Fox is usually painted for the gods, right? Um, and, and, but that's sort of also- I, I, I guess for me, I, um, Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried in this, that like pulled me out. Like them trying to be like 15 year old girls or 16, like however they were supposed to be. I'm like, I'm like, no fucking way. No fucking way. I mean, um, Megan but, Fox definitely looks out of place among everybody else in this film. Oh yeah, well, which I mean, I I was gonna say about um, you know, to obsess over Megan Fox's skin in this movie, um, that that kind of fits into the story of um, you know, spoilers. She becomes a succubus, and when she's weakened, you know, she talks about you know, my hair's duller, I'm lifeless, etc. So when you see her about to feed, that's presumably when, you know, she's not at her most radiant, and then when we see her back in school again walking yeah. the halls you know they have they have the glow behind her she she looks absolutely like perfect for sure and i mean she was 23 when this movie uh, came out so she is obviously older than the the high school years although that is actually so much closer than some i mean uh yeah yeah it, you know i mean rachel mcadams is still playing a high schooler um so mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it, it, it happens. Um, Amanda Seyfried, I tell you, the whole vibe of, uh, even more so than Juno, the whole vibe of the wood paneled walls, the um, dark interior houses, the streets that are lined with just houses that you literally couldn't describe if you wanted to. Uh, they're just boring. It just screamed Midwest to me. I lived in Wisconsin for like five years. Uh, this was, I was like, wow, this is, uh, until later on when they reveal that there's a park there with an abandoned, like, municipal pool, which is redonkulous. It's a great scene, a great set, but it is redonkulous. It would never have been in this town, in my opinion. Except for that, 
I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is the Midwest to me. And I think that, um, and my wife said, uh, yeah, everything looks like it's 30 years old. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what the Midwest is like. Take now and then age it 30, you know, 30 years in the past and that's what you got. Someone did their research. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, unintentional research. Uh, <laughs> Mandy, so we, I, I, I railed you out for quite a bit. What was your, uh, I mean, you see in the film, what was your expectation yeah. going in again? And was it bucked, changed? Yeah, like, I, I think the biggest, um, I, I don't know, like, I kind of, I remembered most of it. Um, I remembered liking it, and I was excited that we we're going to watch it again. Um, what I was most struck by this time around is how much I enjoyed the music. Like, I really yeah. did, like you mentioned, that the soundtrack's really, really good, except for, like, the song that the band, mm -hmm. like, sells Jennifer soul for, uh, which I thought was a great touch because it's like, yeah, like this piece of crap. Like, exactly. It's such, really what it like, you know, yeah. It, I thought that was nice um, that they did that, but they do play it a lot. And I was super annoyed at the song by the end, just like Amanda was like, she's in the, yeah. it's in her car Screaming and it, radio, it comes yeah. on the radio and she's like, ah, and I was like, yeah, exactly. Like we've heard this way too many times. Um, I really like that there were two strong female leads kind of, uh, frenemy style, finally in full opposition at the end. I actually almost texted you guys um, like a meme from this joke uh, thing that I follow called The Man Who Has It All. And like their topic for today was films with a male lead. What do you think? And then like people riff on that, like, oh, well, it must be a, like a romantic comedy. Like if you do that, because they always like flip everything around. Like there just aren't that many movies with strong female leads or that it's like about women a story about women that's not about them being women. I mean, I guess in this kind of was, but like they're yeah. friends and like they had their own storyline. And I thought that well, was really refreshing, especially for a horror genre. And something so. that I, I think is important to mention too, which is I think part of why it's so popular in like the Tumblr crowd um, and, and a lot of online communities is the LGBTQIA plus aspect. They're of course both beautiful women. They're beautiful actresses who are made to look beautiful on screen, but they're their, you know, either bisexuality or, or, or homosexuality in this movie, it seems, it, it is never, uh, you know, they didn't have to, I mean, this is going to be crass. Amanda Seyfried didn't have to get, you know, finger banged in the parking lot by Megan Fox for us to know that this was here. Like it was not, it was, it was not made for specifically the male gaze and ego, right? It's like they are two characters who clearly have a, a homosexual attraction to each other. And we learned that it's not a new attraction to each other, right? Um, it plays out the whole film. It's always a subtext, which, I mean, it would always be a subtext. And you no know, one who's obsessed with another person would have been like, um, today I'm not gonna feel that. Uh, to that to that end, I will say um, one thing that got bucked is I very clearly remember that tagline like in theaters when Megan Fox says like, I go both ways or whatever the bisexual yeah. line is. And when I saw it, I was like, you know, that's a, that's a little better than the trailers put it. It came off as, you know, it's it's funny, it's cheeky, but it came off like a genuine line. Like she meant it. It wasn't just written in to have her say that like she actually was and that was kind of her way of saying it in character mm -hmm. to to her friend in the concepts of she's a succubus and they're in the middle of a fight to the death and all this like yeah, crazy going yeah on. it wasn't that's and i think that's you know i think that's what i mean is i think a lot of people see this movie and are like finally like two characters who have an attraction to a same-sex 
you know, partner or person, and they're not just flat, right? Um, I think because we get this, it's very clear from the beginning and all throughout the film, all the way to the end, that Megan Fox, Jennifer, is the mean girl character. She takes advantage in many ways of Amanda Seyfried's character. Um, Needy is definitely the little dog on the totem pole, but to mix my metaphors. Um, but I think especially with the end where Amanda Seyfried, well, let's listen to this end here, right? Um, uh, Amanda Seyfried has just run from the prom in this hideous, like, uh, uh, worst on the runway, RuPaul's Drag Race, pink, um, shiny prom dress uh, to this abandoned pool where uh, Chip, her boyfriend, has just been bitten and is bleeding into the pool and, and Jennifer is trying to eat her. Um, Amanda Seyfried knocks her out of the way, trying to get Chip out of the pool. This is where we're at. And Jennifer has now levitated out of the pool near them. So we get this, it's it's like, it seems when I was watching it again, I was like, that's a little on the nose. But then as I let it sink and I'm like, actually, I think it's sort of a misdirect on Jennifer's character, right? Because the reality is, is why do you always want what I want? It's like, well, because I kind of, she kind of wants her, right? Like, I think that there is this strong sexual desire because it's, it's why Jennifer keeps going back to Needy's character. Um, and kind of berating her, right? Just like a, a sort of a, a verbally abusive boyfriend would be doing, you know? Like and like keeping... she doesn't let her show off her body when they go out together. Right. Like, right? It's like, like very controlling. And and it's the same mm -hmm. thing with Chip, right? Her uh, uh, Needy's boyfriend, right? Why does it have to be him? You could have anyone. And it's like, because he's my barrier to you. You're my thing. Um, and it's not a healthy relationship. It's no relationship I would want. Um, but I think that it's really interesting that that is what's, that's the internal desire that's driving Jennifer. Yes, I'm teaching a creative writing class right now. So all of this, you know, all these terms are rolling around my brain, but it's true. The external desire is that she's like, well, I'm just a bitch and I get what I want and I want what you have. The actual drive, right, is that she's like, if, if you have other alternatives, I am too insecure to believe that you will have me. So, and that, and that comes out. Um, it just is never said directly because it doesn't have to be said directly. At least that's the hope on the part of, I think, Diablo Cody and the director. Um, and so I really liked that scene. Also, we get some of the great like sass, like Diablo Cody is sort of like the Gilmore Girls, but dirty, right? Like she has these ridiculous lines and some of them ring really true to what, uh, you know, we would say in high school and stuff while others are too on the nose, but Sometimes they're funny, so we let it go. Um, there's another clip here that I'll play just because we're here. This is in the very beginning before they go to the, the bar that burns down and starts the whole thing. Um, uh, Needy is with Chip, and Jennifer comes to pick her up, and uh, this happens. Let's go to the club. Comedy Lane is not a club. It's a bar. In fact, it's not even a bar. It's like a bingo hall with tabs. Be my 
ass, Chip. You're just jello because you're not invited. Jello? That place is disgusting. Everyone in there has a mustache. You're totally jello. You're lime green jello and you can't even admit it to yourself. Your lime green jello will never not be something I don't say. I, that line is so insane that I'm like, yep, that's something I would have said. In fact, I probably would have said it to Tad or Jeff. Uh, there, it just would have happened. Yeah, I'm not, I'm surprised it hasn't been in the vernacular sooner. And I was amazed at how quotable this movie is. This movie has now some of my favorite lines. By the way, Nate, um, get with the times. The proper term is finger blast. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and, and also, um, you that that clip highlighted that my favorite line in the movie is when she's hovering she's like she's just hovering it's not that impressive i'm like that just that just nailed home just how ridiculous this movie is yeah it's like every time it gets super weird and supernatural um just like uh, with seafried she's like she's like no like no she brings it down to earth again and it and it's cool because it makes jennifer a character instead of just a monster um because there are some i mean i'm inured to most horror things at this point uh, but there are some spooky parts, right? Um, the parts where uh, Jennifer feeds and sort of has to, she can't just eat a, per, a man. She has to make them afraid and hopeless. Um, so yeah, the special it, effects it, were good too. They like, were. Really yeah. good. Uh, Love her barf. Her barf, yeah. She has this black, you know, <laughs> exorcist barf that then like riles up a little bit. Like it's got these spikes, like audio waves. I thought it was the symbiote. It, yeah, it looks like it looks like the the venom symbiote totally. Um, yeah. Also, there's neat little touches that we don't really um, they're never explained, but I kind of found them welcome because it just showed that craftsmanship aspect that we get in a film that's well produced and also kind of well loved. Um, like animals and insects show up when Jennifer's about to feed, right? When she's about to go, you know. Uh, animalistic, demon, you know, demonic, and have teeth and rip someone open and eat them. Uh, deer show up, animals show up, in, you know, mis biting mosquitoes show up. They start to gather and it's bizarre, but it's kind of hilarious. Um, and it's never really acknowledged, but it's consistent, which I kind of like. Um, and so I'm totally, I'm totally down with it. Anytime you throw something new at me that, um, you know, even if, if you're not going to tell me what it's about, at least make it fun to watch. Uh, it's sort of the Robert Rodriguez's, you know, anthem, and I think it works. Um, something I want to go back because Mandy, you you mentioned the song that uh, the, the the fake band is called um, uh, Low Shoulder, uh, like a, a gravel shoulder on a, uh, on the road, which mm -hmm. is the most. You know what it made me think? I don't. You weren't with us, Tad, but uh, our friend uh, Greg Kelly, friend of the pod, who is uh, our most punk friend of all time, uh, he was like, hey the band Goldslinger is playing a, a show at the State Theater in Portland, Maine. Do you want to go with me? And I'm like, yeah. And that was like the first time I remember going to like a, a pretty decent punk show. And we go and Alistair, uh, which is another fun little punk band, before they, I think they maybe just dropped their first album, but they were opening. Um, and the lead singer, uh, if you're out there, we love you, has the highest voice I have ever heard on stage. Um, and it is like, it was like that. Like it was exactly like that, uh, that show that they go to in this. And it's sort of that band vibe. Like they're a little too Maroon 5 to be punk. Not you, Alistair, the rest of the band, but they're a little too like mainstream. And the song that this fake band sings, it's essentially like a 2014 year old's Candle in the Wind. Like it's just so sappy and ridiculous. 
Uh, and we'll get into Sapping Ridiculous when we get into Hard Rock Zombies as well. Um, but it, it just plays so perfect uh, that every time it comes on, like you said, Mandy, it is probably played a little too much for my liking. Uh, it's, it's even before it becomes sort of ironic or sort of hated. It's like I hear it too many times. But it made me think then of being in high school and saying a, a band is just not very good or the crap or their posers and whatever. And having somebody like in the front of the class turn around and like try and rip your head off. It's, there's a scene where Amanda Seyfried uh, is in class. J.K. Simmons, the teacher, is up front. And he's like, the band uh, who are heroes for saving people from the fire, which is, of course, bullshit, um, are dedicating their time to come play this song uh, are dedicating this song to the town. And of course, it's that song. And Amanda Seyfried's like, they're losers. They didn't do that. That's bullshit. And somebody in the front turns around. She's got a T-shirt on with like, low shoulder and she's like they're heroes and just her delivery on that i was like oh my god i'm having flashbacks to so many conversations in high school where i was like why did i even open my mouth i don't care your music taste is terrible and i don't care and it was just that was the most real moment in the entire film to me not the emotional stuff not anything that moment where somebody in the front row who's wearing you know a scene kid like rubber band around their wrist and a t-shirt with their favorite band on it turns around and tries to read me for film um that that triggered me uh, i don't know if anybody else felt that way the other thing in this movie that is worth touching on is um i think greg you mentioned it sort of there's this whole like actor story right because at the end of the movie uh spoiler alerts these are all spoiler alerts uh the the i still think it's worth watching but Amanda Seyfried has killed Jennifer, and then she goes to a crazy asylum, essentially, for we presume everybody thinks that she's the crazy cannibal killer who's been killing and eating people because um, she was caught in the act of killing Jennifer. And she is in the nut house, and she's really aggressive. And uh, you find out at the end, because she's been telling you this story in, rever uh, you know, in a flashback, essentially, that after being bit by demonic Jennifer, she has sort of glean some of the demon's power so she breaks free of the asylum why she waited this long i don't know it's a convenient convenient device but she hops in a car uh hitchhiking then to madison wisconsin i assume to see this band play and uh the driver is lance henriksen from <laughs> aliens from millennium from all sorts of things a famous horror icon and in uh, just this weird little bit part. Um, and then she goes and kills the band in the credits. It's, it's mostly still shots, um, but we just see the band like rocking out, being stupid idiot band people like any of us would if we were given a shit ton of money and let loose in a hotel. And, uh, and then it's just them like murdered in the apartment with body bags thrown over them. And it is kind of gratifying because the band are terrible people. And they're also given little character traits, right? Like we see way more of them than, than you would normally see from like the bad guy. Um, they're kind of charming in a disturbing way. Uh, like, especially when they argue whether or not when they're at the, the bar trying to decide if Jennifer, who's coming on to lead singer, is a virgin or not. And I love that Nikolai, the lead singer, is so convinced. He's like, I'm, I know these towns, she's definitely a virgin. Uh, and he's completely wrong. She's absolutely not a virgin, apparently in any way, shape or form. Uh, and, and I love that aspect, Like he's so out of touch. They're just, they're so wrong. And 
they get their comeuppance, but it's, it's later, you know, it's that old classic devil's deal, right? Like the devil gives you the thing, but it's really short lived. It was his plan all along. And, and I don't know. Yeah. Tab. Speaking of music, it's cause I'm always going to bring it up. I absolutely did not expect a, the sword song to be in the middle. Me either. The, the celestial, movie. I think it is. Is that what it was? It was, it was celestial crown and the, celestial. I fucking love the sword and it, it, I, I was so happy to hear a sword song in a movie, but at the same time, I'm like, this song doesn't fit at all. Like, what the For anyone who doesn't know the sword, they are a uh, sort of a goth, not a goth, like a, a psychedelic a rock band uh, that does sort of a Very cosmic vibe. Um, sort of like, sort of like stoner rock, but on a whole elevated level. Yeah, it's yeah, really bad. fantastic. They're, they've got several albums out. They also have incredible... Uh, 70s and 80s style album artwork just check them out the but yeah that one definitely stood out it worked great in the film but it felt more like an orchestral part of the soundtrack because it was not in the same genre as you know panic at the disco and the other and, and so uh jarring. especially and, well, and, like she's swimming in a lake i'm like what does this song have to i i don't know it well and i think who else do we have in there? We have um, the lead singer of Paramore. Haley Atwell has a song in here as well. This is an interesting soundtrack. If you like mid to late 2000, uh, sort of emo, post-modern punk, okay? not post-punk, but post-modern punk, then, then you'll, you'll probably dig the soundtrack. If you're a, a 2000s kid, uh, you will definitely like it. The music, and again, that's why I chose this film to go with Hover Zombies, it is ever-present. It is also very loud. They definitely made some choices uh, about the mixing. I don't know if anybody else like when uh, Jennifer is going to go on a feeding, you know, spree somewhere, uh, the, we know because the music uh, blows out the, the speakers um, as opposed to the dialogue. And it was an interesting choice. I remember in the theater, it works really well. In my, my, my home theater, uh, it was not so great, except to uh, scare the crap out of my cats. <laughs> um, I, but again, I liked this, Greg. You had some reservations. As you said, I think, was it just that the plot, just, was it that the plot didn't didn't diverge from the expected? It kind of is what I expected. I I think it was that it, it went, um, you know, I, I said it went down a, a track and didn't jump off. And I mean, yeah, you know, plot aside, I think it went down a middle of the road track. And maybe that's my issue is, like you said, it was very cleverly marketed at 15-year-old boys, yes. um, but it wasn't a movie for them. But on the flip side, I don't think it was this, like, powerful female film either, necessarily. Like, mm -hmm. um, I, I think, though, Mandy, I think you had it exactly right that, I mean, how many movies are there where there's two strong female leads who talk about something that isn't men for more than five minutes um so it had it had some stuff going for it but i wanted it to be i guess i wanted it to be one way or the other and it tried to do both and mm -hmm. i think it it, it tries to either. be mainstream yeah right? it tries to be yeah. mainstream and i think it succeeds in a lot of ways i think it's a lot more successful than a lot of the films um that we would kind of compare it to um while still retaining more of a female touch if you if you will yeah. allow me that um i think uh this film really shines in when you dig in past it, right? Because, um, for example, we don't have, we have in the beginning this scene where they're at the bar before uh, Jennifer approaches the lead singer and tries to sort of schmooze him really awkwardly. Like, 
I think I think Megan Fox killed this acting role. I think she deserves so much more credit because she's not allowed to act very often uh, because she's so pretty. Uh, she's not given the opportunity. And in this film, she actually acts. And it's startling to see it because when she goes from like, I'm the queen of the school, I can do whatever, I'm above all of you people, to talking to an older guy that she thinks is hot, it's embarrassing, right? Like she's stumbling a little bit like it, it, it sort of and and i felt the nuance from her that i just i didn't expect when i first saw this movie and i was so happy it was there because again you know her her next biggest role is probably transformers the first couple and she's not given anything in that uh she's just arm candy in that film and it's a shame um didn't need to be in that movie at all no she didn't yeah. and in fact they <laughs> proved it when she got in a fight with michael bay and, and they recast her as somebody else you know, so, um, and it's not her fault, right? Uh, but I really liked that scene. And in this, right before they approach it, uh, she turns to Needy's character and is like, what are you so afraid of? They're just boys. We have all the power. And she grabs her breasts and is like, just point these where you want, smart bombs where you want to go. And, and the interesting thing is, is that's how she acts. But then we see the reality, right? She has no power against these people. Um, they completely, they use her in a, a terrible way and she's essentially murdered and possessed by a demon because of it. Like it's the most extreme version of this. Um, and then she spends the rest of the movie forcing power over men. Um, and it's sort of in that way, uh, Jeff, Jeff would probably mention, it's like a revenge flick, right? Like that's sort of part of Jennifer's character is that she's been abused and now she's living the fantasy that she told herself was real in the beginning which is we have the power because she doesn't have the power as a woman in our society um and that's people like oh it's digging too deep well it's what i fucking do um i think that's valid but it's also the it's it's the same problem i think i had with prevenge where it's basically it's a revenge flick except it's a revenge against people who basically had nothing to do with your pain and yeah so it's kind of it kind of invalidates it It makes you seem like a jackass well so so (laughs) it's one of those things it's like it's sort of i think contemporarily we need to look right like does it invalidate it because that's a big point of the black lives matter movement right is um uh you know is somebody damaging i'm not saying black people doing this at all it's all likelihood it's white idiots out there uh, but damaging a target during a protest um well that target didn't oppress them sure but uh how else are you going to be seen how else are you going to be heard and are we by not forcibly changing it at all times complicit in that oppression right it's sort of like does it even matter in a given point like if uh during the slave uprisings in uh, pre-Civil War America, am I going to hold it against a group of, um, you know, generationally, you know, um, oppressed and enslaved people who kill a household of slave owners, including the children? Am I going to hold it against them? Probably not. Um, So it's kind of like, like you said, does your damage make you hurting other more, you know, relatively innocent people okay? I don't know. That's, that's an argument to have, and it, maybe it's a sense of scale versus um, an overarching sentiment. Um, but it's true. You kind of, it's uncomfortable because you feel for these people, right? Because she's actively preying on people. She's not going for the strong guy who's a douchebag. She's going for the, the um, uh, linesman. The exchange student. <laughs> the exchange student, the linesman, the nerdy kid, right? Um, she's going for, for sort of the low-hanging fruit, much like 
uh, so many of those asshole men we knew in high school did, right? Like she's becoming that monster. It is that flip. Um, and I think it's really easy to see it as the monster, but I think it takes that extra step to take it. I'm like, oh, that's what's happening. It's a flip of the script. Uh, and yes, it's terrible in both instances, but now I kind of get it. So I think that's interesting. The other thing that I thought is worth talking about in this, um, and I think there was some talk about uh, this component of the film when it came out, that some people were upset about, uh, is the weird parallels to school shootings. Uh, lots of scenes in this, because essentially there's this terrible tragedy in this small town. Uh, eight students are killed in the fire, um, which by the way, let's talk about why eight high school students are in a 21 over bar at that point. I'm like, maybe your town needs some fucking work. Midwest, that's why. Right, it is exactly the Midwest. Literally, when I lived in Wisconsin, uh, the school bus would stop at several bars along the way to drop the kids off because that's where their parents would pick them up. Um, <clears throat> so there's, but there's, there's these things where in the beginning, everyone is crying in the hallways, you know, I'm assuming that there are like counselors on site, that sort of thing. Like people, like the J.K. Simmons teacher gives a really like heartfelt speech, sort of falls on deaf ears, but everyone is really upset. And then everyone's upset when the star football player is, is killed. And then, I mean, to see for his character say, and then people are getting less upset. The more people that get killed, the more immune they become to the pain and they just start going about their business. Um, there's no more candlelit vigils singing that obnoxious song. Like, and the parallel, like this is post Columbine. Like this is not, you know, this is not, school shootings are not new to Diablo Cody and this film. Like uh, they're well aware of that. And that sort of extra layer that they put on that isn't really relevant to the plot so much as, uh, I mean, it's convenient for the plot because maybe then people aren't looking for the killer as much, but the idea that the more violence occurs, the more we just say, nah, well, yeah. What about today though? That was yesterday. Uh, is really terrible. And it's really, it actually upset me. And it, it made me think way more than I expected to about it in the aftermath, because we see this over and over and over again. You know, every school shooting happens and people are outraged and less and less people seem to report on it and give a shit. Uh, and I think well that this movie is well aware of it. Hmm? It's a well-known psychological phenomenon and sure. you can see it happen over the past 70, 80 years of media. Like at some point, these things become so common that people get numb to it because you kind of have to. You don't well, have Well, South to. Park has played that so well with, with their yeah. entire arc in the school <laughs> shooting. You know, it's like every day, it's like, yep, that's going to happen. Send them back to school. Um, and I think this film uh, has that as an element to it. Uh, it uses it, you know, it, it uses the, the murdering demoness, you know, a succubus character to sort of add that extra layer. And I don't think it was shoehorned in. I think that it's just subtle enough to not overwhelm the, the larger, more mainstream plot, but it's definitely present. And I remember it in the theater and watching it, I remember it again. And I'm like, this touched some nerves uh, when it came out. So interesting. Uh, again, I think Amanda Seyfried's performance was also really great. I mean, she's essentially the main character of this film. She narrates it. Uh, we get a lot of, I think in the beginning, my, my wife watched it with me and she didn't really like the narration aspect. Um, I agree, it's, you have to settle into it, but I think that the intent was probably to mimic all of these high school you know, movies where it's like, okay, I know, I'm just blah, 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 Mr. Normal, you know, or Miss Normal in the average American high school. 
and then I became a princess. You know, like it's that sort of thing. And they're putting it in this completely inappropriate film. And I think that that was the intent. And I, I it didn't bother me. I kind of liked it. Um, is it in Mean Girls too, right? Yeah. Amanda. Which, of course, Amanda Seyfried is in that as well. She, 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 she makes looks, out with her cousin. Mm-hmm. She looks younger in this film than yeah. she did in Mean Girls, but it was like five years later. Mm-hmm. It's not disturbing. It's Here's crazy. the thing. It's crazy. Here's the thing. It's because she is fairly young in this film, right? As is Megan Fox. And here's here's the crazy part to me, is that we so often forget how young these actresses are in films, paired with fifty year old men, and it is kind of upsetting because you know when someone is dolled up with a lot of makeup and they spend a lot of time and money to dress them up, it's like oh yeah, oh. Uh, whoever i mean even kira knightley and johnny depp you know what i mean you're like yeah whatever they're both like attractive and then you're like oh yeah they're attractive and this is her grandfather right like it is just like richard gear having sex with rachel mcadams that's not a good you know balance um them telling maggie gyllenhaal that she's you know too old to, to play opposite richard gear when she's 30 30 33 and she's like he's old enough to be like my old dad right that's craziness. And I felt like this film made me think about it because Amanda Seyfried looks like a high school student to me. Um, and, uh, but I do think uh, Trixie Mattel, awesome drag queen, great in, in her and Katya's show, uh, which if you don't know what that is, it's just U H yeah, watch it. It's on uh, YouTube. It is amazing. Um, but they were talking, and also, uh, we like to watch is another show they do for Netflix shows. And I think in one of those, someone is supposed to be like the ugly duckling at a, at a high school. And they're like, yeah, she's really ugly. Uh, and they like put their hand to their face and they're like, um, it's like, oh, I'm so ugly. Like, that's what it's like. Like no one is really gonna look at Amanda Seyfried and be like, um, uh, cow, hideous, beast, like not gonna happen. Um, so this is why I did great Chanel. Huh? Listen, this, that's why she makes such a great Chanel. Listen up sluts. Right, right, yeah. So um, anyway, we're gonna move on with this because we've been, I've been prattling on a ton. Um, Greg, final thoughts on this. Would you recommend it? Why and to who? Um, I wouldn't. Um, I'm gonna do my usual stick of, I altered it in recommendations. Um, consider watching The Craft oh, or uh, either version of All Cheerleaders Die, so. Those are my options <laughs> nice. for you. Uh, okay, yeah. Like I mean, that's valid. Revenge flicks about high schools that have all female like leads. So, and I sort of think uh, it's interesting. We, we talked about this a little bit before the show, um, but this film does feel like uh, sort of the plot of the craft lifted and put in someone else's hands and molded into another movie. Um, so, I think if you like the craft, I think you might like Jennifer's body. Um, it definitely has more of a Diablo Cody feel. So if you like Juno and that weird fucking shtick that they have going, um, like I do, and Michael Sarah for president, then you'll like Jennifer's body a lot. But okay, those are valid. Uh, Mandy, who would you recommend Jennifer's body to and why? All right. Well, I want to mention also that uh, a plot point that we didn't get to, which is I really enjoyed the blood bond between the two girls. Right. And how that played out in the film. So it was really good. Um, so I would say I would recommend this to people who like witty one-liners, as we mentioned, very quotable film, lots of zingers, good stuff. Um, if you, um, I don't know, enjoy picking apart uh, toxic relationships, 
This has <laughs> great examples of gaslighting in it. <laughs> so, totally. <laughs> check that out. Um, and then also, you know, murdery demons, of course. Right? Absolutely. So, I'm a sucker for wrong, cannibal yeah. films. Right? So. Can't go wrong with this one. And it was great. I thought there was just like a lot of little weird idiosyncrasies, like we mentioned, through it with the animals um, and like the girls' uh, subtle kind of relationship and friendship dynamic. And stuff. So it's a good well, one. And, and that brings a good point. And the blood bond you mentioned as well, all these things. There's lots of, the script is clever. Diablo Cody is a clever writer. Um, and so like, the town is called Devil's Kettle because there's this little mount, there's this little waterfall and it goes to a hole in the ground where it all drains and so on. And scientists haven't been able to figure out where the hell it exits. And that's where the killer uh, from the band throws the knife. And then at the end, when Amanda Seafood is hitchhiking, she sees there's the outlet on the side of the highway, wherever she is. And there's the knife and she picks the knife and that's what she uses to kill the band. So it's like there's, and that's, and they don't even have to, there's literally no dialogue about it. It's just, visual um and that's a testament to both her writing and also i think um uh kusuma's directing kusama's directing kusama's directing we call it um, good storytelling good storytelling uh <laughs> all right i'm going to say uh i'm gonna do me because it's my show so i get to go before tad i recommend this film to people who like uh, some sort of caustic humor with their horror um, I agree with Greg. This is not like hugely for for like gore hounds or people who like really terrifying horror. It's more like a fun film you could watch with people who want to watch something scary for Halloween and you also want to have a good time. Um, there's some some people who 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 are jumpy or get there's some jump moments. Uh, there's some great effects. Um, there's some beautiful women. There's not that many beautiful men in this film, um, which is, is, is sort of interesting. And I think that that's also valid. There's a lot of normal looking men in this film. If you want to see J.K. Simmons play a heavier set character with insanely bad hair and one arm, there's nowhere else to look. Uh, do it. Uh, yeah, so I'll recommend it to people for that. And, and also, I will say people who like the craft. And I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not the new craft film is going to be good or bad. I haven't seen it. I don't know. Uh, let's be honest, none of us know, but I will probably enjoy this one more. It's more up my alley. So if you agree with me on these podcasts, give it a watch. Tad, who would you recommend Jennifer's body to and why? Um, surprisingly, I can't believe that I actually ended up liking this movie more than I did. And I think it's just because I distinctly remember this movie's release and hype. And I was like, why do I care? But um, I agree with you. Um, if you like bitchy teen sort of drama, if you like really, if you, this movie is fantastic on the dialogue, the last 30 minutes are the best part of the movie by far. Like the movie starts out really slow and then, then just that whole like last 30 minutes of the movie makes everything. So it's worth the buildup. Um, so I would recommend it to people who, like I had mentioned before, if you like uh, TV shows like Scream Queens, if you like Mean Girls and you like a little horror mixed in with that stuff. Oh wait, there's already been horror mixed up in the, just, just what, I, I actually would recommend this. I can't believe I'm saying that. It's true. And again, I'll just say one more time. I think it's a marketing thing, right? Cause they marketed this as hardcore as look at Megan Fox, be sexy. And she is sexy, but let's, you know, let's be real. This isn't a movie about her being sexy. This is more a movie about the uh, effects of someone being sexy and being assaulted and turned into a demon. So 
that is it for this one, but we've got another film coming up. Next up is 1985's Hard Rock Zombies. So this film is a film that Tad and I watched about 15 years ago. Tad, when we watched this, those 15 years ago, uh, was it a copy from Video Update where you worked? Is that it? Or did, or did our friend Matt somehow get a copy from near his house? No, I can't it, it was definitely a copy from work because I distinctly remember we talked about this in a previous episode. I just can't remember which one. This was a movie that I'd worked there for a few years and I looked at this cover and I was like, Hard Rock Zombies, guys, we should probably watch this. And then I, I don't even remember the details of how we ended up watching it. I, but... I don't know either. And here's the other thing. So usually, uh, and video update is long gone, uh, RIP, uh, movies that you took from video update did not often make it back to video update. So what shocks me is that if you did this, that one of us doesn't own it. And that's why I asked, because none of us have it. Um, um, and I, I can assure you that this movie was rented because there's no way I would actually want to keep this piece of shit in my I, library. I, I, I very much would. We'll talk about this. Um, by the way, those who already love cult cinema and are fairly well versed will know that this movie from 1985, Hard Rock Zombies, is often paired with 1988's Black Roses, um, which is uh, a different film, but another one to watch if you love this sort of like uh, demonic black magic mixed with 80s rock and roll. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize this film quick because before this, um, Tad and I had seen it, but Mandy and Greg, you guys had not seen this film, correct? Correct. Yeah, I didn't need to ask that question. So <laughs> this movie... I've seen this a movie, lot of really random old zombie movies, though. So. That, that's right. Mandy is our mm -hmm. resident zombie lover. I'm a big zombie fan myself. And this movie, it's rated R from uh, 1985, and uh, it's, it's directed and written by Krishna Shaw, and uh, also as a writer is David Allen Ball. Um, and let's, let's just, there is so much crammed into this insane film that I'm just gonna give you the actual plot that is interspersed throughout insane segments that are called like skits. So the overall plot is that there's this 80s rock band. They're a rock band, they look like they're supposed to be a metal band, and they have like one or two metal songs, but really, <laughs> they they mostly play like 80s uh, like, pop yeah like it's sort of a weird like soft Ballads. yeah it's a ballady like it's not as it's not as like 80s met hair metal as like every rose has its thorn it's more like um uh some weird mix between like winger uh, and another band I can't quite put my finger on. It's just soft, right? It's mostly soft, very non-threatening, even though they pretend it's threatening. The plot is this band is on their way to do a show in some podunk town where uh, the their manager, who is also their straight-laced friend who just always has like a cigarette or a cigarillo in his mouth, like it's a stogie, but I don't think it's ever lit. Shout um, out to him for his uh, yeah. lack of recognizing a good gig. Yeah, so right. great hilarious so he's like we're going to like there's a guy from i want to say is it paramount or something it's a big record like an actual record uh and a media producer something like that so he's going to be at this show so we have to blow him away and they're trying to get there but this little girl at their previous show the night before says to the lead singer don't go you can't go my dad will stop you and then she leaves and he's like weird kid uh and they go anyway and sure enough, the town is anti-rock and roll and forces them to not do the show. Also, 
they pick up a hitchhiker who's a hot chick who says, why don't you guys stay at my family's house because it's better than a hotel, which seems unlikely. The family is actually like the relatives of the still living Adolf Hitler and Ava Braun who made a deal with the devil of some kind and now they have mutated children and are monsters. They kill the band. Don't know why, I guess it's just what they do. Um, try to recruit the manager to help Adolf uh, cleanse the world, uh, I guess, as Adolf wants to do. Fourth and Reich. Yeah, right, the Fourth Reich. And then, um, and then the, the little girl who, uh, by the way, the lead singer, who's apparently our protagonist, uh, has decided he wants to have sex with because he's in love with her and she is a child and he writes a song about it. Uncomfortable. Um, right? Uh, and that's the big romance of the movie. Um, he says, here, play this song, which he has on a cassette, if something happens to me. This song is something he got from a book. That's literally the only explanation in this, but it is a, uh, it is a, a like, lick that raises the dead, which him and his rip. band, yeah, him and his band are only moderately interested in that fact. They learn that it's true, and it's just something that, oh, that's interesting. Like, you know, like, oh, they put walnuts in this trail mix. Like, that's fascinating. I think uh, that this this movie, the dead. it's just live-action uh, Metalocalypse, right? It is totally, that is so, except for not having Brendan Small in it, which would make it a million times better. Um, so, yes, so that's, so anyway, something bad does happen to him. She plays the riff. They raise from the dead, go kill the Nazi family, and then go play their gig. The only problem is, is that the Nazi family are all ghouls. So they come back from the dead because you can't kill them. They then go on a rampage throughout the town, killing the townspeople who then become ghouls themselves. And we have this insane, if you're not following this, well, welcome to the plot. We have this insane it. thing where you've got like uh, the townspeople who we never had met before this really, um, trying to escape and stop these ghouls from ripping people's heads off, which seems to be their favorite thing. And then you have um, the band who are basically like tin marching men. Like they, they move with like a weird dance rhythm as zombies. Um, they're sort of like Rhythm Nation, but if you like held the rewind button, so it's real slow. And, uh, and they play their gig and then go back to their graves. And the only way the manager can get them out again is by saying, hey, the townspeople are going to sacrifice that underage girl you want to have sex with to the ghouls unless you come help. And then they do come help. And ev all the ghouls in the band die in uh, Hitler's gas chamber. Yeah, this is literally the fucking movie. Okay? Under the mountain underground gas chamber. Totally, totally. It's like, that. Super weird. Uh, also, there's like a Methuselah Moses figure at one point. Um mm -hmm. And there's uh, God's trying there's, to take him away. Oh God! And oh, what else? There's these tons of weird jokey moments in here where they try and do humor. There's like two times that I actually laughed in this film. I will give it that. I was surprised, but it's it's an hour and thirty six minutes, which feels like forty five minutes Eight too hours. long. Yeah, it feels like a long time. So. I've given you all I can give you on this film. I can't really, there's, there's some background we'll get into, but Tad, you were really passionate about this film. Take it away. What is your, what is your experience rewatching this film? Okay. Um, I think you and I can agree that this movie was better the second time around when we're older and we can like dig into it a little bit deeper. But fuck, this is a movie that had so much potential because there were a lot of great ideas in this movie and some of them were 
I think accidentally well executed and some of them were extremely <laughs> poorly executed. So my summation before I start going mental on this is this is a movie that Full Moon should have done and did not do considering that this movie came out a year before Terror Vision came out. This movie feels and I don't know if it's on purpose or not. I have no idea because it looks like it was made with $5, which was $5 more than we had for our <laughs> budgets when we were making movies. But this movie did, you know, we, th there's clearly parallels with this movie and the stuff we did when we were in high school and, and beyond. I want Full Moon to remake this movie. Legit. I, I want them to put some money behind this and actually execute some of the good ideas that are in this movie. There is a fucking bit that goes on for the entire movie about one of the sons of Hitler or whatever it is, ghouls, that eats itself slowly through the entire movie with no, there's no reason for this to be in there. But throughout the entire movie, this thing is literally just cutting pieces of itself off and eating it. And it's some, and the end of the movie, it eats its own face off. And I distinctly was like, oh my God, this is the movie. Because for years I've been like, you know what? I distinctly remember a scene where a zombie ate itself throughout the entire movie. And I'm like, what fucking movie was that from? Now I know. It's from Hard Rock fucking Zombies. Yeah, that was literally the only thing that I remembered from this movie at the time, although some other things came back to me. Um, I don't, it was really I, funny. He gets mustard out at one point. Yeah, he like, does. He, he does. his hand and then he eats the hand. And, and there's he's, this he's, weird music playing in the background that's like always the same when you switch back, sort of. So the characters it we're talking is, about for our listeners, they're played, they're two little people. Um, and they've been in other films, uh, but they are, I think Olaf and Bucky are their names. I think Gary Friedkin played Bucky. I could be wrong. They're, they're, a lot of these people are not in many other films. Um, but yeah, one of the little people has an eye patch and the other little person has, uh, is, is like a demon mask. Like he's a, he's a monster. They are the children of uh, Hitler and Eva Braun's children. And I don't exactly know, there are three other characters in the family. I don't know which ones, if they're all just supposed to be brother, sister, offsprings of Hitler. It's unclear because um, two of the characters are like a couple, a woman who seduces people and, the, and the, the other man who takes photos of them as she kills them. And then there's a, a leather facey wannabe guy. He doesn't wear a mask. He's just a big bald guy. Um, but he tries to... Uh, he tries to either axe or weed whacker people to death. Um, and, and then you have, uh, and then that, and then you have the, the two little people. And at one point, one of the more disturbing scenes before we know that the old man of the family is actually Hitler uh, there, he's like getting ready to have sex in bed with uh, Ava Braun. And then the two little people pop up. And he's like, what are you doing here? You have to go. And they're like, oh, can't we watch? And then he's like, no, get out. And then Ava Bond's like, why can't they watch? And he's like, okay. Like, and it's, you're just like, oh, extra gross. Super gross. It's, um, there's so much shit in this movie where it's like, this would be funny if it was competently done. This movie is- This would be funny if I was 100% sure that everyone in this movie knew that they were in a movie. <laughs> That's- that's what, that's what be, that would be funny. So here's the thing. And also we don't know, like we don't, there's no real explanation um, except for the fact that they made a deal with the devil somehow. Um, they made a deal first with uh, the American government to, to uh, leave Germany and come live in this podunk town as ex-Bible salesmen. 
and then they made a deal apparently with the devil to be ghouls. And there are some fun gore effects in here, very 80s low budget gore effects. Their heads being pulled off all the time, hands being cut off, um, reanimated hands. I don't think any actual tarantulas were harmed in the filming of this. It looks like it may be though, and I always hate that, because the reason I don't think so, because there are two different tarantulas uh, and two different things are budget. There's not a huge amount of budget. I have a feeling that, that, that $10 for a tarantula might be a little steep and they needed to return it, yeah. um, which, which is always good. Uh, and let's talk quick about, so Krishna Shaw is the director of this film and as an adult, um, this kind of makes more sense. Uh, from India, uh, Shah was born in, uh, in uh, Bombay and died in Mumbai in 2013. Now, uh, he, he did uh, Broadway stuff, um, uh, and he did um, another film, a couple of films, but the, the bigger one is American Drive-In from 1985 as well, which he also co-wrote with Alan Ball. Now, if you know Bollywood cinema at all, or Bollywood like, or, or, or uh, Indian um, daytime dramas, you know that they love their insane cuts. They love odd dancing at weird occasions. And they like what I like to call mood shots, which is occasionally during scenes, they'll cut to somebody doing something like another character that couldn't possibly technically be at the same time, but it's just to set the mood. And in this case, it's, um, Hitler's granddaughter, played by Lisa Toothman, we'll get into, dancing, like, in the street in, like, torn jeans and stuff, like, very 80s. And it's just to set the mood. And they do this in a lot of Bollywood cinema and, and TV dramas and things. Um, by the way, if you want to see some insane shit, go look at compilations of reaction shots from Indian uh, soap operas, because it will blow your mind. They, they discovered the Photoshop filter button and After Effects button and the Zoom buttons, and they... They wear them out. Yes. It is crazy. Um, but that made more sense to me, knowing that someone who is familiar with Indian cinema made this movie because it makes all of the jumping back and forth, especially in the second half of the film, which is less, um, it's less prosaically lined out. Uh, it made it more sensical to me. I wasn't as shocked that I was seeing things that just seemed like scenes crammed in that had nothing to do with anything. It's just, um, there's so yeah. much. There's so much going on in the movie that the the pacing is. That's why I was like, this movie feels like it's three hours long because even though it's a ninety minute movie, this is shorter than Jennifer's Body. But the but the it sure pacing, doesn't feel like it. The pacing doesn't exist. And the thing is, is like I said, um, there's a lot of positive in this movie that just isn't realized. Like some of the acting is actually pretty hilarious. Like most of the band members before they die are pretty charismatic and actually fun to listen to because yeah. it sounds, it's once again, it sounds like they're just kind of ad-libbing and the, I, I the townspeople are, are, it feels like an episode of Parks and Rec before Parks and Rec was a thing where they're just like, they're just throwing out weird shit. It's like, who wrote the, who wrote this? Who, what moron wrote this law? You did. No, it was him. Hey, I just advised you. It complete. It, it doesn't even feel scripted. But it, like I said, this movie. The what I what I really give this movie a detriment for is it's ugly, as in like it was filmed with the cheapest shit possible. Sure. For eighty for eighty five, it's unbelievably ugly. Yeah, Fuji film, Fuji film, and I don't know if this was shot on video or not. No, in fact, I know it wasn't um, because on the title title card it says fuji color underneath it which i guarantee fuji did not ask them to put on that Probably title card not. um 
I will say there's a lot of stuff to get into with cast and interesting things too, but we'll just move this. Mandy, what did you expect going in and how were those expectations met or obliterated? <laughs> I was expecting more actual zombies and less yeah. like demon ghouls. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised by like the nod to like Hitler and like Nazi lore as part of a lot of zombie films like through history um it wasn't exactly along the same lines as is often included but i really liked that that was like part of the package that we got in in hard rock zombies um second movie that we've reviewed that has a hitler character in it yeah it does go watch our our uh our ultimate fight and yeah. undefeatable with cynthia rothrock uh episode yeah. that's a good i think it's episode three that's a good one here's the other thing but to there's note like, too but there is a like a strong history of Hitler and Nazis specifically in zombie films. And I like totally. that got wrapped well, into this. And it's become part of lore. It's also based on fact, but it's become part of mm -hmm. popular lore that the Nazis, especially during the end, and this trails back to Hellboy as well, uh, tried to explore occult things to win the war. Um, and that's mm -hmm. what happens. I'm pretty sure the Trump presidency is trying the same thing right now. Uh, and when you get desperate, things get weird. And this is definitely an aspect of it in this, in this movie. The other thing to mention is, for those of us who watch a lot of 80s movies, and a lot of 80s movies love their hair metal or new wave or various things, and they have a lot of footage of bands playing. Uh, we did Vicious Kiss a while back. They did the same thing. These people actually play their instruments, um, it looks like, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, I'm sure there's a few exceptions. Um, the lead character, Jesse, who falls in love with the underage girl, uh, he is played by uh, E.J. Kurse, uh, which is actually his birth name is Ernie Corsillo. And he's been in a lot of TV shows, still acting. Uh, and the last thing he was in is he played a character in the world's greatest tribute bands, which is the TV show from 2014. But he's done a handful of things. And then we also have uh, Gino Andrews, uh, who honestly, I don't, really know anything about except that he's been in some some other direct-to-video films um and then uh sam mann who played uh he played i don't i think he might have played the drummer who was probably the most charismatic the sort of funny one um but i'm not 100 percent. but he is also in a uh, rollerblade and, and from 86 and rollerblade warriors which we're going to do, and the Rollerblade 7, the third follow-up, we're going to do these movies at some point. If you didn't know that the 80s had like this craze, short-lived craze of roller uh, rollerblades, not roller skates, rollerblades, not roller derby, rollerblades. This was a thing, just rollerblades. I think because they had the word blade in the title and because they could make them out of multicolored plastic, it totally took off. And so they made these post-apocalyptic warrior films about rollerblading warriors and Sam Mann was in all of them and they are they're beautiful we will talk about them at some point if you see them on a shelf snag them uh, but that was Sam Mann and then also uh, Mick McCain Mick McMains uh, is in this movie as well and he's a, a musician and he's still making songs he had a song come out last year uh, since I started loving you so there, there are actual musicians involved in this the the music itself is written by a successful musician um, I, I, I don't, again, Paul Sabu is, is the name of, um, uh, the musician who wrote all the music. That was, it was one man. He's written a lot of stuff. He was also on some interesting ones. He was on the trick or treat soundtrack, the original 86 one, uh, been in a million soundtracks. 
Uh, he also wrote an episode of Kids in the Hall or like a skit, which yeah. kind of blew my mind. Um, so good on that. And I don't think uh, the music is poorly written. Uh, it's just not as metal as I would have wanted it it's to be. It's not hard. It's barely rock. And this movie's only kind of zombies. Uh, True. True. And can we talk about, I know, Greg, I'm going to get to you in a second. Can we talk about uh, when they when they come back from the dead, their faces are painted? And yeah, they turn into like, Kiss. They turn into Kiss. Like at first, like Jesse's looks almost like it might be corpse paint. Like you're going to get into a little Alice Cooper-y thing. But then like you look at the other ones and yeah, like when they came back to life, like, oh, you're half like Ace Freely. You're Catman on one half. You're like, it just, it, it, it literally, and part of the problem, and this is a pacing thing too, as you said, Tad, the characters are kind of charismatic. They're at least entertaining to watch Bumble around. But when they become zombies, which is in the half mark of the movie, they don't speak. They don't yeah, do anything. They just, they're robots that walk with their arms in like a staccato motion. I have to and say, then, I love that dancing. Their oh, walking was mm -hmm. the highlight. It is. Greg, when you saw this, what was your expectation? How did it go? Uh, well, after you recommended Troma's War, um, I've, <laughs> I've, I've basically been like, I don't, I don't know what could happen. Um, this wasn't quite up there in terms of what am I watching. Um, but, you know, I, I'd say that this reminded me a lot of the first time I saw The Room, um, where <laughs> I, I ended it and I'm like, you know, I think I enjoyed myself, but I can't in good conscience recommend that to anyone ever. <laughs> So, yeah, um, yeah, of course, the reference to Tommy was so is the room, uh, friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, I so this movie, it is just an experience, I think, is a good way to categorize it because, yeah, the first and, and what Tab was saying when, when he said both he and I uh saw it and was like, oh, this is better than I remembered it. When I first saw this film, I was less well versed in super low budget, obscure uh, 80s and 90s uh, ephemera shot on video, that sort of thing now being much more well-versed in that. There is a plot to this movie, and for the first half of it, it actually follows the plot. Um, and there's a lot of elements, I mean, almost every element in here is taken from other movies of its ilk. So you was easy, it was easy to follow, but it's that halfway mark when it becomes a skit show, essentially, uh, and you follow different groups of people at different times, some of which you may or may not know or may or may not be the same people. It turns into the, the, the final 20 minutes of Rocky Horror Picture Show, where you're like, <laughs> Was Richard O'Brien even there? Like, I mean, I know he's on screen, but I don't think, I don't think he was watching anything happening. It's so insanely crazy. Uh, the, there's, there's so, much, so much going on, it's almost paralyzing to pick something to talk about. The problem but, is, and you mentioned it, is the main characters die and there's nobody to pick up the flack in terms of totally. like characters. There's nothing left. Everyone's a zombie or it's random randos the manager is the only one that comes through and he basically yeah. shows up just to remind us that there's a plot and to remind the rest of the cast that there's a plot and then they move to a plot scene and then it veers from him again um i was and, uh, personally living for the uh the big wig record producer <laughs> who you keep cutting back to him halfway through and like he's watching the zombie band do their oh, set yeah, right and awesome. and he's and he he's all for it he doesn't care what's happening like the nazis oh, show up and are storming the stage and like people are fighting and he's like like snapping his fingers like yeah groovy i dig it like can we talk about the fact that when he shows up 
He makes a joke that there's no audience, because of course the show is canceled, but also they're <laughs> under siege by ghouls, right? Yeah. So he's the only one in the audience, but he brings a fucking bag of props with him. He sits down and he pulls out like a picture of his wife, we assume, and like, uh, it looks like a, a, some sort of mixed drink. I thought he was gonna do an oil painting. There was so much shit on the table. And then he has a phone. He brought in a corded phone somehow to sit next to him to talk throughout the performance to another guy how do you know that he's successful in the 80s if he doesn't have a phone he carries around it was it was it was the most like the if, like, if you pulls had, out a bottle of pills and takes a bunch of pills in the middle was, it was incredible <laughs> and and let's talk about the scene so what happened so he of course eventually is killed the band plays their set and then he's trying to give them a uh a million dollar con or two million dollar contract something crazy like that and uh and they're going to think, and he's a like, A million dollars in, like, today's money. I think it was a right. half a million dollars. Half a million, that's what it was, 500,000. In today's so like, money, it'd be, yeah, a lot more. Yeah, it, impressive. <laughs> I'd take it now, okay. Um, even my cut. But he's like... Half a million? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to give it to me, you know, <laughs> yeah. join the Patreon. Um, but he's like, he eventually gets killed, and then he's still apparently sitting. He goes back to sit in the audience, and the manager shows up to try and find... Uh, Jesse and the band because he needs them to save the underage girl that they're planning to have raped by ghouls because that's how apparently ghouls work and he shows up and he's like man I, I can't believe you're here and he tries to sell him like he tries to start to spin a yarn to be like well this is what's going to happen and he's like ah it doesn't matter the band's dead I can't pull your leg then he gets attacked realizes the guy's a zombie and as he's running away he's like you're a hack and everybody knows it <laughs> like it's that sort of weird moment where they have to throw in jokes um, that some of them actually end up landing. Yeah. Like, I, I liked the one, and maybe it's because I'm in Southern California, but I like the one where the random townspeople are looking through old books trying to figure out how to get rid of the ghouls. And this old timer, because apparently this Midwestern town has some town elders, as if that's a thing in the U.S., um, and they're like, you, you, have to, you have to find a virgin, stake her to the highest hill in town, and then the ghouls go ravage her, then they devour her, and then they go to sleep for 100 years, and then it's someone else's problem. And one guy's like, that's an old wives' tale, which, by the way, no, it's not. That is not a wives' tale. No wife has ever, ever said that. Uh, but then the nerdy guy reading a book, uh, they don't have names because we don't know who the fuck they are. He says, no, it's true. They did it in Los Angeles. And the other guy looks at him and goes, where would they find a virgin in Los Angeles? And I loved that line. And then he's like, well, it was 1890, which again is another funny thing because it, it implies that there's going to be a zombie uprising in Los Angeles in 1990. Uh, and I just, it's just that sort of thing where it reminded me of, as you, I think, mentioned before, that writing movies in high school where everybody like had these ideas and you just throw it in a mixing bowl. Um, there's a scene where the town intellectual says that ghouls hate heads, literally people's heads. That's why they're tearing them off. And so what we need to do is wear giant heads, i.e. framed prints of Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, which I don't know what thrift store they raided. Okay. And you have to put them in front of you and then you can just walk by and the ghouls won't care. Well, obviously that didn't work. And there's, there's a street just littered with heads after that. And then you have a woman who fights off one of the little, you know, people ghouls, but her boyfriend is decapitated, and then she spends the movie running after the decapitated head and carrying it with her. Are you okay? Like, she's talking to the head, and like, it, it, like, are you okay talking to, the, to a severed head? 
And then, which is moderately funny, even when she <laughs> becomes a ghoul, like she still carries it around. But then you have insane, even insaner things like the little girl, like the, oh, she's God. like, I have to use your phone. You're like, you're, it's dripping. So she has to leave the head outside, follow this woman into her house. The little girl picks up the severed head and drop kicks it out of frame. What? This is just one of those movies where it's so much more fun to talk about than actually watch. Once you're done watching it, you can spend hours talking about this film. By the way, Nate, I'm glad you mentioned Winger because that girl, the underage girl pops up and the first thing I do, because my wife's watching this, is I go, she's, she's only 17. And my wife goes, there's no way she's 17. No, no, she's supposed to be young in this. And they write a song about it. Her name's Sophie, right, in the song? And no, they write a Cassie. song. Cassie. Cassie, I'm going to write is, a song about you. Aren't the lyrics like, like, oh, like, baby, you're so young, but I'm in love? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's great. Like, and and Cassie like, is played, Cassie's played by Jennifer Coe, uh, yeah. COE, who she was in, like, an episode of Falcon Crest. Um, I don't know if she acted hereafter. Um, she actually does a fine job. Uh, she's just an 80s kid in there, sort of the weird, like, you know, like a Mormon-looking little girl, and I don't. Maybe I'm going Mormon because I'm making you all my wives. That literally is in this movie. That is a line <laughs> in this movie. Um, but here's the thing that's crazy, right? In the beginning, it's almost sort of cute, right? Like, because it seems almost like Jesse's character, the the lead singer, like he's just kind of being nice to her and sort of teasing her to be like, "This is cute." Like, this little girl has a crush. Because, like, in the beginning, he sees her, and she warns me, like, you're a weird kid. Don't you want an autograph or something? And she's like, I have to go. And he's like, weird kid. And then he sees her again. And he's like, hey, like, what are you doing? And then she gives him money to bail him out of jail when they are locked up by the town sheriff, who locks them in what I guess is a hay barn with bars? Yeah, it's a barn. I don't, they in a barn. I don't understand what that was. They can't afford she can't, a jail. She hands them money, and it's sort of cute, right? Like, it's, I was like, okay, I, it seems like he's just maybe – you know, like, like if, if I were a 15 year old, you know, in the nineties and Cindy Crawford, and I went to see a talk and she blew me a kiss. Like, that's cute. Right. Like she's not going to sleep with a 15 year old. Uh, but you know, but that was a key. It would have made him let me like lose my mind. Right. That's cute. But then no, no, no. Then he does full fred fall in love with her. And that is creepy as shit. Her dad had the right idea. Get her out of there. Get that creepy pedophile with the mustache out of get town. The, get the fuck out of, out of town, Pecker. Yeah, to- that was another line. Very quotable. And so that, that was just super uncomfortable. And then, yeah, the song. And it's also like the, it's the equivalent of, it's the 80s equivalent of the song from Jennifer's Body. He did say that he wanted, you know, that they should be there until death do they part. And he does die, like, sure. a short time later. And she pledges so, her undying yeah. love to him. Yes. Uh, Wow. Never, never. that is a sad life she will have forever because I don't think, I don't think EJ Curse is the is the top of the food chain well, to aim for. At least the movie ends in it on a cute note where like she can always go back to his grave and he's still there and he gives her the engagement ring like he still responds to her. Yeah, it's just it's a depressing like hey my my corpse, uh, fiance like he pops his hand out every once in a while and reminds me he's there. It's cute and depressing at the same time. Yeah, it's no, I think it's just downright was about gross. just holding hands. <laughs> holding hands. That's what you do when you're in love, is you hold hands. You hold hands. It's it's real gross. Mm-hmm. It's real gross. I, I'm not going to lie. Real gross. <laughs> so uh, uncomfortable. I was just like, I don't understand what's going on here. I don't know why they decided to make this 
we, like, we have multi-generational like cuckolding yeah. scenes you yeah. have uh it's like that's why it's like you took rocky horror um return of the living dead and lolita and threw it in a blender poured half of them in the sink and filled the rest with water like that's what this film sort of feels yeah. like that's, that's uh, it's got everything literally, literally everything. they threw everything in here and um let's listen to this clip so this is uh this is uh, uh what is his name the 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 gentleman who played hitler and give him props because really i don't know what kind of like balls it's a man i think it's i don't even know that he's credited as hitler in in the thing which is interesting yeah he is it's jack no, bleisner is. jack bleisner and jack bleisner um was in uh, uh Crime Killer. He played the president in a movie called Crime Killer or Zeus uh, in 1985 as well. I don't know why 1885 was his year, but it totally was. Um, he he commits 100%. He shouts lines from Mein Kampf throughout the, like, the whole thing. And then when he's Hitler, like after he's revealed himself, he's not just an old man, he's Hitler, um, and he becomes a zombie ghoul, he like half-heartedly Zig Heil's the whole time. It's like one of those pecking bird toys that pecks water. Like his hand just sort of raises up, even when he's like trying to struggle uphill to get to the verge of sacrifice, his little arm. It's just it's the Doesn't he doesn't he doesn't he sing as Hitler before he's dead, he sings that Disney parody song from that old Donald Duck cartoon, like in the fear's face. Yes. Uh, yes, he does. Which I, I heard him start singing that and I couldn't believe it. I'm like, that is such an obscure it piece is obscure. Of, like anti-Nazi propaganda. Like, and it's just, also probably still copyrighted. Oh yeah, hundred um, so percent. I don't know. But but here's the thing though too. What what exec at Disney is gonna be like uh, somebody, somebody stole this song. Oh, we're going to go after him. What is it? Um, well, a guy dressed as Hitler, they're like, never mind. Just, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Is it, like, is it a song that we use in the park? No, that I don't care. I don't care. No, I don't give a shit. <laughs> um, let's listen. This is one of my favorite jokes. So this is when, uh, they've killed the, the band. Um, the manager has to know, I get, but I mean, he doesn't, I guess. I don't know why. Um, but he's at dinner with, the matriarch, who turns out to be Hitler, he reveals at this dinner that he's Hitler, and all the family and the sheriff, who's in cahoots with them, because apparently they pay for the town. I don't fucking know how that happens. But um, he offers him a job, and apparently the manager goes with them to this job, and that's where we see the boiler room, which is supposed to be a, a, a gas chamber. And he describes a blue gas and a yellow gas, uh, where he basically screams that the, I think the blue gas fills your lungs with pus and piss, and the other one makes your head split open. I don't think this is how gases work, but he does that. And then the guy's like, you're crazy. And this is what happens. It's, let's listen. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a Trump rally. No, I'm just kidding. Let's go back and listen. Now admit that you were excited. Now will you accept my job offer? Please. Oh, oh, no, let you! No! Ah, no! Let me go! You and American is a use. So I think it is all the same. No ambition. Pollute his blood. You will be the first we will eliminate. Shame's a nice boy. That joke, 
that joke was that's that's the kind of thing trauma aims for but so often like so rarely hits that was the perfect line for me he's like losing his shit screaming in german saying you know mixed blood and then he's like shame nice boy like hilarious uh <laughs> so inappropriately hilarious can i just point out that that actor let's see a uh, jack bleisner Bleisner, only has yeah. only has two credits: um, Hitler and Hard Rock Zombies, and then President of the United States yes. in some film called Crime Killer. Um, what, yeah. like I said, it's what also an Zeus. Yeah, I know, right? And that's the thing, and uh, that's why I'm pretty sure that, um, much like he'll pull off his hat in this movie and become Hitler, Donald Trump will pull off his hat and become uh, Jack Bleisner. I'm just kidding, Jack Bleisner. I would never say that to you. Um, so. I just one more one more quote from him um, before he reveals himself as Hitler and he's still just old German man. Um, he he's caught in bed and I wrote it down. I think like he's explained to his grandkids what he's doing, which is sex. But he says like "deschlept, defuckenbacken" or something like just like absolute <laughs> absolutely. What, whatever he says, I feel like this movie is worth it alone for that insane fake German. Like, sure. And, and I don't, it makes me wonder if a lot of the other German is fake. Cause I don't think it is. I do think they gave him, I do think they were like, here's some reels of Hitler. Cause it's kind of spooky. He actually sounds like those old recordings of Adolf yeah. Hitler. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's an unnerving thing, but it's in so, it's just so bastion insane. There's nothing sensical about this film at all. Um, it's a boiler room, not a gas chamber. There's a literal boiler. There's a furnace that he points at. Like it's a furnace, but then no, it's a gas. It just doesn't make, there's no sense whatsoever. Um, I, I want to go to uh, some of the things that I think are pretty good. Uh, Lisa Toothman, who plays Elsa, that is the, the murderous uh, femme fatale of the Hitler family. Uh, she's also in uh, Rollerblade Warriors, which is the second of the Rollerblade Warrior films. Um, she was also in Witchcraft 3 in 91, Eyes of the Serpent in 94, um, a TV movie which probably aired on Lifetime because it's called Molested. These, she actually, I thought was all right. Um, and one thing I didn't know because I'd seen her in like Rollerblade Warriors, I didn't realize she's clearly a dancer. She's actually very uh, skilled. And there's a scene where um, the, the underage girl Cassie is in the audience, the empty audience, uh, and behind her creeping up is Elsa's character, and she's already a ghoul, and she does this insane leg lift straight up to her cheek and holds it there to, like, spider step over the seats, and she does it, like, twice. It's, I mean, my wife's a dancer, and she's very flexible, and that is hard to do. So, like, that, I was, like, and she does have tons of dancing scenes in this where she just, like, is dancing for no reason. She does a lot of dancing around people while other ghouls kill people, um, she also, for fans of, of, of disturbing and sometimes sexy schlock, she has a topless scene in a shower. She also gets bottomless in the first like five minutes of the movie, which is always kind of a rarity because topless is so much easier, but she doesn't take her top off right away. She takes her, her pants off, which, hey, kudos to her. Um, and, and that's totally like a uh, 80s-ness like there's just this is 80s direct-to-video glory like uh you know drive-in is dead for the most part and they're moving to the video store and that's exactly where this one is like yep i'm sure it was rented a ton i'm sure tons of tapes wore out um it's it's one to watch uh, as an experience we're 
So the songs. Um, well, let's listen first. This is, this is Lisa Toothman in the beginning. So it opens with two random strangers picking up her as a hitchhiker. She sits on their laps as they're driving. I guess there's no stick shift in this stick shift car. And they, they then push, she directs them to pull off at a lake. She strips down. She goes in the lake, nude. Uh, another, one of the guys follows her. They both follow her, presumably. One of the guys are there. And then she drowns him, but blood starts spraying out of the water. Okay, I'm like, all right. Her weird little like brother lover is taking photos from the other bank. And then after she drowns the guy, she turns around and the other guy has also gotten naked and gotten in the water, but he's just facing the other direction, like 20 feet away, like, I don't know, like enjoying the highway view. I don't understand what that was about. Cause then she drowns him. I'm like that, you have no survival instinct. If that's the case, I mean, this guy would have grabbed the third rail because he has no feeling like that's the sort of thing. I don't know how this was supposed to happen. Um, so right away, you know, that plot is not important here because no reality or logic is involved. Now that's in the first five minutes. Then we get this scene shortly thereafter um, where uh, actually before this scene. So after the intro, then we see the band play. They play some soft rock pseudo hit. And uh, then they get off stage and there's all these women screaming in the crowd, whatever. They get in the locker room. They undress down to their extremely tidy whities uh, The drummer is in a red thong. And their manager is trying to, he's like, go out and talk to the girls. We got to get pictures with girls. You have to have those because that's what the labels want to see, that you're popular with the girls. And they're like, no, no, like, no. They don't want to see this entire auditorium of, of young women who want to throw themselves at them. And so the manager is like, all right. And he opens the door and women flood in. And like they have them, it's another sexy scene. They have like them signing their breasts, signing bare butts. Like it's, it's moderately titillating for the eighties, you know, but the, the lead singer is disgusted. He's like, oh, I don't want any of this. This is crazy. And then I'm like, what are we supposed to then believe it's because he only wants girls when they're 13 years old? Like, I don't understand how that was then supposed to play with like three minutes later when we get to this scene, which I'll play us, when Lisa Toothman is picked up on the highway and they're all like, yeah, like she's hot. I'm like, there were like 30 women taking their clothes off for you and you were not into it. But some woman sweating on the highway in Southern California for God knows how long, that's what you want? I didn't get it. But here's this, it's uh, Lisa Toothman and the rest of the band. And this is uh, probably the most awkward conversation ever captured on film. You live around here? Not far. Last night, some little girl told us to stay out of here. Strange town. Strange little girls. Strange big girls. Maybe. Why'd you want us to stay out? Can't imagine. Is this town kind of weird or something? Nothing weird here. <laughs> okay. Strange town. Anything weird here? Nothing weird here. I'm like, what alien wrote this script? And... I don't think that there was a script. Uh, I think that's part of that. I'm not sure there was, because uh, people, I just, I think there were ideas and then they told them what to do. Um, and then they were like, uh, okay, that was good. But this time try to do it like you're an off, off, off Broadway, low rent Mel Brooks. And that's what we got. We have $15 um, for the day. We only have two takes, get it done. This is one of those where I'm pretty sure most people were not paid. Um, but I will say this one had a little more, but it must have had some budget because they did have multiple sets. They had, um, they had blood spray 
quite a bit sometimes. The scene where um, the, the big, bold, leather-facey uh, guy gets stabbed through the throat by the Jesse zombie. Um, then he comes to and kills uh, Cassie's dad, but he's pinned by his throat to the wall. And he keeps trying to reach for him, and he can't get there. And the guy's not facing him. He's smoking a cigarette facing the camera. And then finally, he, un he gets out of it. He goes, and then he takes a bite of him and he has to spit it out because he can't swallow because there's a knife in his throat. So then he has to remove the knife. That, to me, that was kind of genius. And it really, I think that's what you're saying, Tad, the promise was there, but there was so much extra shit. Like if they if they edited it down, but then also made it a little more polished, like they could have spent more time. They would have. There was so doing, much time wasted stuff. on music videos that had no business being in this film. It, this wasn't, this wasn't, so my wife, was watching this with me and she said, this is like uh, head of the family, except really crappy. That's, that's a good thing. And, and I, again, I liked head of the family uh, quite a movie. bit, um, but it's true. It's not polished in any way, shape or form. And it does have a charm in that way, but it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, I know they looked at this and said, should we cut this 10 seconds out? And they're like, uh, that 10 seconds of film costs us $3. And they're like, all right, we're leaving it in. Um, and, and listen, so, because we've mentioned the music so much here, here's a clip of some of the better music. And you hear clinking because this is when um, uh, Joe McJackass, the record producer, is in the audience, I don't know, mixing a drink. He's dancing with a phone while no one's on it. It's a weird scene. Yeah, it's like he's he's playing the kettle drum with a fork. I don't know what he's doing, but um, but so that's one of the better bits because it's more rock. Uh, and then the other ones, it's like if you took the Scorpions' "Winds of Change" um, and then had it rewritten by I don't know, um, like a like uh, one of those Muzak companies that made like elevator music, uh, and then you had the doorman of that elevator sing it. There's and, so many songs in this movie that are literally like that. They're, the the yeah. Cassie song is just um, I'll Be Watching You by the Police, except yeah. shitty. Yeah, it, it's way shittier, like way shittier. Um, if any Sting fans out there, don't get your hopes up. Um, yeah. It's not even third rate on that level. And again, Paul Sabu actually has some great music. So it's it's just, he had to write how many tracks for this album? I mean, for this, this movie. Uh, and you can find the soundtrack out there. It does exist. So we've, we've come to the conclusion here of our discussion of Hard Rock Zombies. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Greg. Who would you recommend Hard Rock Zombies 1985 to and why? Um, I mean, to go back to what I said originally, um, if you want a viewing like The Room, where you just kind of leave, just changed in fundamental and horrid ways, um, <laughs> I'd say go for that. Um, on the flip side, if you've been listening to us and you're like, I don't think I can stomach this, but I like the premise, consider watching that um, that 2015 short film uh, Kung Fury instead. It's got a little bit of crazy 80s. It's got Hitler. I mean... That's, that's true. And if you're one of the ones uh, lucky enough to um, kickstart Kung Fury, then you will, you will enjoy that. And there is also, just so everyone knows, for fans of Kung Fury, there is a uh, Kung Fury 2, which I think might be feature length. 
Um, and it's actually supposedly got Schwarzenegger, Michael Fassbender, uh, some, some real interesting people in it. Uh, David Hasselhoff's got a bit. So keep your eyes open for that. It's already, it's already done principal photography. So that should be good. Yeah, that'll be fun. Uh, Mandy, who would you recommend Hard Rock Zombies to and why? Oh, I would really only recommend this to two types of people. People who really like hot garbage movies. Like, that's your thing. Like, they're, they're out there, right? Um, I feel very attacked. Right? Like, <laughs> no, but like, you know, that's, I mean, it's pretty much what it is, as we've just discussed for like the last hour. So, um, and then also people who are feeling um, nostalgic for like the Indian restaurant they used to eat lunch at every day that always had the Bollywood like musicals playing like you know on the TV on the wall like me I don't know I I, I actually really I wrote down in my notes that I really liked the music montages because they were like little music videos like in the middle of they the story totally. and broke it up which is very much like the Bollywood that you mentioned. And, yeah, and it's 80s law also. If you have mm -hmm. metal in the title or hard rock, if you have rock in the title, you better have something that you could just chop on either side of the film and have a music video for. Yeah, uh, Tad. So that's that's, oh, it. Nope. that's <laughs> exactly. And I, I didn't mean to jump on you, but uh, Tad, who would you recommend this film to and why? I wouldn't recommend this film, honestly. Actually, that if you want, that's if you're listening you've already gotten the gist this film is far more interesting to talk about than watch i don't wa recommend watching this film you could watch dead alive you could watch any full moon video the the, the um, head of the family watch that instead watch bad channels uh and if you just want it oh actually that even better because bad channels reminds me of how much better that soundtrack was Touching Myself Again. It's a fantastic song. Everyone should listen to it. Hey, so uh, if you don't know that reference, go back and listen. I believe it's episode six. Listen to our, uh, our Bad Channels uh, and Coneheads review where I talk about how much I hate the song. <laughs> Touching Myself Again. It's bad. I'll listen to it like at least once a month. Uh, I do have that soundtrack. It's a fantastic soundtrack. Uh, Blue Asher Cult did the orchestrals and uh, that's not this movie. So that gets to me, who would I recommend this to? Uh, two types of people. Recommend it if you wanna make low budget indie films. This is a good example of how you can kind of do whatever you want and mash it into a film. Uh, and also an experience of how if you don't cut out enough, it's gonna be real, real slow and draggy. Uh, the other group of people, if you like 80s trash films, like Mandy said, this movie is sort of the king of the trash film. If you watch Miami Connection, um, which is uh, phenomenal genre mash um, that is a much more effective and well technically produced film but this is very much on the horror side of it when you think of a of, a, of a, like an 80s action film you think hey it's been produced with a little money uh, that's sort of Miami Connection is to the high budget 80s action movie what Hard Rock Zombies is to the 80s horror movies where there's already no budget so you get to ultra low budget um, give it a give it a look. If if you though if you don't like being zoned out by hour two, you're not going to make it through this movie. Um, you know you might enjoy some Lisa Toothman TNA and a little bit of Hitler, but then you're going to go to Snooze Town. So I was going to say if you if you need your Hitler parody fix, go back and watch the Ultimate Fight. Highly recommended. One of my favorite movies of all. Ultimate time. Fight, 1993, Ernie Reyes Jr., also known as The Process. Great film. All right. 
that's it for us today on Colton Classic Podcast for uh, Rock and Roll Murder. I'm so excited that we got to do these movies. Thank you so much, Ted Mastroni, Amanda Longley, Greg Johnson, and I am Nate Wyckoff. To play us out, as always, is The Chud with All About Evil. And I want to let you guys know one more time, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast uh, for a dollar a month. You can support us, get a bunch of extra stuff. Also, you can give us a little more and get uh, cards, autographed custom trading cards, as well as zines every month. And uh, the clips used in this podcast are property of the owners of the films. They're used for a few purposes only. Thank you guys so much and be kind. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.